Well, so this morning we are focusing on verse 4, which is centered on rejoicing. And in thinking about rejoicing, and as we do so from the Book of Common Prayers layout for worship, uh, we're, we're brought back uh, ultimately to, to the call to worship we had beginning the service, which is Psalm 5. And Psalm 5, as we read it, uh, probably uh, struck you as a very strange psalm to read on a Sunday just before Christmas. It struck me as I was looking through the liturgy uh, in preparation for this Sunday that the, that the Book of Common Prayer had that listed out today. Uh, however, as has been the case in so many of these scripture passages that have put together, uh, been put together by our forebearers in the faith, um, those who've come before have put these things together, uh, it, it proves to be uh, representative of a great deal of, of wisdom and scriptural insight. So, so in Psalm 5, if we think about this for a moment, uh, which is actually printed for you in your, in your bulletin there at the top, if you want to have an eye on that for just a, just a moment, uh, Psalm 5 was written by David, whom we're growing to know quite well from our studies in 1 Samuel. Uh, David is, is writing Psalm 5, surrounded by those who are opposed to righteousness, they're opposed to God himself, they're opposed to David as God's king. Uh, David speaks, to those, uh, speaks of those around him as being adversarial, he's surrounded by those who he describes as being boastful and, and are, are evildoers. Uh, in fact, David's quite explicit about aligning himself with God's righteousness and calling God to judge the wicked who are around him. Uh, in fact, David makes a, a statement about these evildoers in verse 9 of the psalm that's quite potent. He says, he says, destruction is within them, their throat is an open grave. It's a comment on how their, their, their speech coming out of their hearts, destruction is within them and coming out of them are, are words of death, things that promote destruction rather than life. And, and that's actually a verse, uh, Psalm 5 verse 9, that the Apostle Paul will quote later on in Romans chapter 3 when he's making the point that all of humanity finds themselves under the just judgment of God. Uh, Paul quotes the verse saying, our throats are an open grave. Uh, as, as he writes the commentary in Romans saying that it doesn't matter who we are, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter, we're all condemned under sin in our, in our natural condition. Humanity is set against God. And in Psalm 5, that's, that's what David is so vividly experiencing in what's going on around him. Uh, because while we don't know the exact circumstances that David is facing in, in the psalm, we do know that uh, the darkness is surrounding him. So many are against God, they're against life, they're against David himself. And yet, amid the, the irreverence toward God, amid the adversaries who've set upon destroying David, David does have this plea before the Lord at the end of the psalm. David speaks to the Lord and he, and he asks, Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. So, so darkness is all around. Uh, throats are like open graves. Everyone, it seems, is, is, is lying and out for destruction. And David prays, let all those who take refuge in you, Lord, be rejoicing. David doesn't pray, let us have joy when all these terrible circumstances are over. He prays for joy to be found in the midst of all the badness, all the harm around, as his people take refuge in the, in the Lord. So joy, even right in the middle of darkness. Which, which brings us to consider the fact that, that joy is a very interesting concept just in general. At one level, we think of, of what it means to be joyful, and immediately we equate uh, the notion of joy with a kind of basic level happiness. Um, so, uh, so there's joy maybe at a, at a child's birthday party. There's going to be joy around the Christmas tree when we all uh, get to open presents and everybody's happy and excited about that. We're filled with joy. We're happy when we, when we get to do things like go on a long-awaited vacation or something of, of that nature. 
Uh, to be in circumstances that compel rejoicing is, is easily and rightly associated with, with situations and experiences that make us glad. The, these joy-inducing circumstances are those that, that are the exact opposite of all things discomfort, all things pain. Uh, to be joyful is a matter of responding to happy conditions. However, at another level, we also know that, know that joy can be a bit deeper than that. Uh, we've maybe had an, an ailing relative who faces fairly bitter physical concerns. They're far from comfortable, but somehow they're still exhibiting gladness in their life. Maybe you've known those kinds of people. Uh, even, even though they're physically failing and even in pain, they still have a, a kind of disposition of gladness. They still have a smile in their, in their tone as they speak. We've known those kinds of people. Comfort is gone by most measures. However, there's still this joy that's present in their life. It's this kind of thing that, that prompts one Christian author to make this comment. He says, there are rare and wonderful species of joy that flourish only in the rainy atmosphere of suffering. Joy is an interesting thing, and that's quite the statement to make. There are rare and wonderful species of joy that flourish only in the rainy atmosphere of suffering. So, so what do we make of a statement like that? Especially as we think about it at Christmas time. This is a season of joy, isn't it? At least it's supposed to be. Uh, the sign that's up in the neighbor's yard tells me to be rejoicing. The music playing at QFC when I'm buying groceries, that's cheerful music. But, but what about the fact that conditions are not altogether happy all the time? This can be true for us very much so on a personal level. Often during the holiday season, we face unique hardships and heartache around around relationships that are most meaningful. Those aren't, those aren't joy-producing circumstances. There can be hardship and sorrow there. Or, or even worse with the, than that, I was talking with my neighbor at the, at the end of last week whose father just passed away, and he made the comment, why does this stuff always seem to happen during this time of year? So, so there's the sign that says rejoice in the front yard, and it's even lit up. But my neighbor's having a very sad Christmas. And I know for some of you, you feel that in a unique way yourselves this year. At a, at a personal level, the, the, the immediate sense of joy at Christmas time can be overshadowed by difficulty. So, so what about joy in all of that? Or, or to pan out a bit and think about uh, things just beyond the personal things that we experience. Think about our own city, the people who are affected by so much in, in what seems to be the spiral of, of affliction and destruction that we see around us, the sorrow represented even as we go for an evening walk through the neighborhood and in the context of people's lives of suffering out on the street. Or, or here we are the week before Christmas and you probably saw in the news that, that outside Cleveland High School, so two miles from here, a 16-year-old boy was shot outside the school while the kids were all in class. Not fatally, thank God. Right? But how horrific is that? How scary is that? How, how opposite to all things good and glad and, and Merry Christmas to all is that? Right? Personally, socially, we recognize there's darkness around. And yet today, for, for, the, for the very last song of our service today, we're going to sing joy to the world. So how can that be okay? Either we're shutting ourselves off from a realistic view of things, or joy means something bigger than a regular definition might lead one to believe. And it's exactly along these lines that Paul comes to bring us help. Paul, Paul comes in to help us in our understanding of true rejoicing as he writes this letter to the Philippian church. Now, this is, this is quite a letter from Paul on the whole. Paul writes this letter from prison. We know that from chapter 1. 
He's been arrested because of his commitment to preach the gospel. His preaching has made Roman authorities upset. After all, only Caesar should be called Lord. What are we doing talking about the Lord Jesus Christ? So, so Paul finds himself in prison. And then to top it off, we read in chapter 1 that, that while Paul is in prison, as he's writing this letter even, others are out preaching the gospel. But they're not out preaching the gospel right now because they really want to see unbelievers become followers of Jesus. That's not why they're preaching the gospel. Paul actually says they're preaching the gospel to stir up more trouble for him while he's in prison for preaching the gospel. So there's ulterior motives going on. So Paul's not just in prison as he writes this, but as he sits in his his chains, he's got some, some serious and crafty enemies. Right? Paul's facing deep darkness himself, and it's from this condition that he writes to the church at Philippi. And the Christians at Philippi, they're facing hardships themselves. Uh, There there was some immediate social pressure for them. We understand that from from the way Paul writes. He speaks to these Philippians and, and says that they're facing the same kind of struggles he currently has. So whatever else is going on there in Philippi, there's at least a social threat to them that might land some of them in prison because they're following Christ. They they are recognizing uh, some of the same struggles that Paul himself is dealing with. And then on top of that, there was religious pressure. Paul refers to the dogs in chapter 3 who are workers of evil, who seem to be this group who's come into the church distorting the truth of, of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So in the Philippian context, there's social pressure, there's religious pressure, and then, and then there are the interpersonal struggles going on in Philippi as well. So Paul has to address grumbling in chapter 2. There's some complaining that's going on. And he has to address selfishness in the church. And, and then in the beginning of chapter 4, Paul directly calls out two ladies in this letter, Euodia and Syntyche, who are ladies who Paul says have been extremely significant gospel partners with Paul in ministry, he says. In fact, he actually uses military language to describe them. In the beginning of chapter 4, very literally, he says that they have fought alongside me in their gospel work, these two ladies. These are gospel ladies, but now they're fighting. They're at odds. There's interpersonal strife between them. So so the church at Philippi, they're facing some some significant darkness of their own, personal pressures in relationships, social pressures. It might be prison for some of them, and then religious pressures. There are these false teachers coming into the church and causing all kinds of trouble. Things are not even and easy and naturally joy-inducing for these Christians. And it's into that context that we drop into chapter 4, verse 4, where Paul writes from his own imprisoned condition, remember. He writes, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. So Paul calls this church, in, in the midst of all that's going on, to exercise themselves in this kind of gladness. And in Paul's statement, especially as we set it in the context of this letter, in Paul's statement, we can find a great deal of help as we consider true joy at Christmas time. This is a different kind of joy that's represented here in terms of what Paul is talking about. This is a kind of joy that transcends. And maybe you feel yourself this morning in need of that kind of renewed joy, a joy that's bigger than the things you're going to have to face in the coming week, a joy that's bigger maybe than the pressure of the last year or even in the pressure of the last couple weeks. A joy that's bigger than the news headlines, bigger than the concerns that can seem so relentless. It's a joy that transcends these things that we're brought to consider today. And so so we'll we'll meditate on this verse here and we'll notice a few things together. It it is worth pointing out just from the beginning that, that at first what Paul says does seem really heavy. 
In fact, when we just start unpacking the nature of what Paul's giving us here, it almost seems illogical. We can wonder if Paul's uh, got, got a bit of a, a condition going on himself in terms of his right ability to think as, as we start in on this. But, but just as we go, we'll see that Paul ultimately leaves us in a very glorious position. So we have, to, we have to wait as we go through this to see how Paul is packaging all of this, ultimately in a, in a way that does leave us compelled to rejoice despite all that we might face. So, so we'll look at the passage here. You can follow along. It's just one verse. Easy to follow along today. Um, and, and we'll start in then verse 4 by recognizing, first of all, that this rejoicing is something that Paul commands here. It's an imperative. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's, it's commanded. So, so we're attentive right away to the fact that Paul is not defining joy for us per se. He's not saying this is what joy is like. He's not telling us what joy is, but instead he's directing Christian believers from his place of apostolic authority. Paul's, Paul's directing us to actively exercise ourselves in gladness. And in fact, this is the third time in this letter Paul's given the command to rejoice. And the command nature of what's going on here is very interesting. In fact, it's interesting, not least of all, because it's initially fairly off-putting. Right? Paul says rejoice. As Paul says that, we could, we could excuse some folks who are maybe on the verge of being sent to prison in Philippi. You know, we could excuse them for saying something like, don't tell me how to feel, Paul. Right? We're, we're, we're really going through some significant things here. Don't command me to feel happy. However, Paul would say, I'm not telling you how to feel. I'm telling you what to do. This is a call to action. Rejoice. Exhibit delight. Hold your head up in triumph in the midst of your days, he's saying. So, so Paul is speaking here about actively cultivating a disposition that communicates well-being instead of gloom. Right? He's, he's speaking about taking care with words and attitudes to, to have our general countenance underpinned by a tone of brightness rather than us being, being marked by complaining and sour demeanors. Complaining is something that's going on here in this church. And he's making them, uh, bringing them to a point of making an adjustment with that. Paul's giving this church an imperative uh, directing them toward this kind of gladness. And while this is different than we naturally expect things to be, it does give us a point to start from in that if we're speaking in, in biblical categories about joy, while joy is, is no doubt a genuine and delightful emotion, in addition to that, to be rejoicing is an expected act of volition. It's called for and expected on the part of a Christian believer. If joy can be apostolically commanded, the command can be willfully obeyed. So, so at the very least, when we start thinking about Christian joy, we can say that rejoicing is not something that we passively wait to have come happen to us. Isn't that how it, it's easy to think about joy in that category, isn't it? We, we, don't, we don't sit back in a state of gloomy, morose, ill-temperedness until something comes along and lifts our spirits. Right? Rejoicing isn't something we wait to have inspired in us by whatever immediate life circumstances may, may change or may come along to, to make us feel happy. It's not a passive wait for it to happen to me kind of thing. Instead, it's something that we're actively to engage in. It's, it's not a, a wait for it. It's a response to a command from the Apostle Paul. Rejoice which is just an, an important distinction to make, but, but that is a hard one. That's a hard one for me because I, I, I like to be happy when I feel happy. But if I'm totally honest, I like to be gloomy when I'm feeling gloomy. Right? Right? So leave me alone, Paul. 
but he doesn't. He gives us command, and, and we, have to, we have to keep reading here because he doesn't just give a command full stop. We need more than that, and Paul knows we need more than that. He's going to give us more than that. But it is just worth pausing here and thinking about exhibiting general brightness of countenance in my life. And, and a text like this just requires, requires honesty, even in my own reflection this week. My own personal tendency is not toward that, and you probably know that about me. But, but, but that's where the commands of God come in. They, they, they counter the tendencies that are in my heart, and we need that counter to come, right? Paul commands that we rejoice. He directs us to exercise an uplifted manner of life where we're not under a cloud, but instead we have a, a tone to our life that's generally smiling, right? The, the command to, our, uh, to, to rejoice. And then as we keep going here, we move from the fact that rejoicing is commanded, we move to seeing that rejoicing is continual. So, so it actually doesn't seem to be getting any less challenging here. Where rejoicing is commanded, now rejoicing is something that, that, is, that is going to be ongoing in our life as believers all the time. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're under two, then no rules apply to you. But, but, but part of the way we have this all-the-time thing here with rejoicing is, is, that, is that Paul gives us something of, of, of that uh, flavor in the verb tense that he uses. So if we were going to translate this command literally in English, rejoice here, it would be be continually rejoicing. It's a present active verb that, that Paul uses. Uh, so, so this is to go on and on. Be continually rejoicing, that's the command. And then just in case we skip grammar class, Paul makes sure we get his point, not just by repeating his command, again I say rejoice, but, but, but he, he actually tells us something about the when of rejoicing. So be continually rejoicing. And in case you don't, you don't have your grammar down, what does he say? Rejoice in the Lord or keep on rejoicing in the Lord always. Always. The Greek word there is an adverb of time. It just means all the time. So, so that's the command. It is a continual call to gladness all the time. And he says it twice just in case we didn't get it the first time around. Be rejoicing continually at all times. Again, I say, be rejoicing. Which, which, which sounds very odd, continually at all times. How can we re be rejoicing all the time? Because what about the strife between Euodia and Syntyche at the beginning of chapter 4 here? That's really sad. The Philippians must have wondered how they can rejoice with that kind of stuff going on. Or what about the fact that these Philippians are being troubled by teachers in the church that are nasty enough for Paul to call them dogs? That's, that's bad. How can we be rejoicing with this kind of stuff going on within our community? Or what about the fact that these Christians are facing the same threat of prison that Paul currently finds himself enduring? The threat of prison doesn't seem like a compelling reason for gladness. Keep on rejoicing all the time. I don't know, Paul. But speaking of prison, that does bring up an interesting point. Because, because we must note that while Paul himself is giving this command... Paul, by his own example, did live out this kind of joy even in Philippi when he was there first bringing them the gospel. Right? So in Acts chapter 16, Paul's in Philippi with Silas, and he's preaching the gospel. He's, he's planting the church there in Philippi. And we read about how Paul and Silas were ministering there, and as things were going along, they ultimately are attacked by a crowd. They're stripped and beaten by authorities, and they're thrown into prison with their feet bound. So right home to the, the missionary committee on that one. How are, how's everything going? Well, right? but, get, but guess what they did at midnight in their prison cell? Do you remember the story? What were Paul and Silas doing at midnight in their prison cell? They were singing hymns. They were praising God. And a bunch of the people around were listening to them. They were rejoicing. 
And, and even now, remember, Paul's not writing this letter to the Philippians, sipping a morning cup of coffee on a, on a Mediterranean balcony somewhere. Paul's in prison. And he's actually already said in this letter back in chapter 2 that he's presently rejoicing himself because of the gospel partnership that he's sharing with the Philippians. So he's in prison, but he's presently rejoicing. Or earlier when he's talking about those people who are preaching the gospel just to make things worse for them. Do you remember what he says about that? He says, I just rejoice that Christ is being preached. They're trying to make things worse for me. I'm here in prison. I'm just really glad that the good news about Christ is going out, even though those folks are totally messed up in their motives. He's rejoicing. Talk about continual gladness. Paul, in prison right now as he writes this, he mentions multiple times in this letter why he is currently joyful. And, and it's in that that we start to get a proper and much bigger view of how gospel rejoicing really functions. This kind of rejoicing, it's not, it's not blind to genuine hardship. We have to know that. In fact, one scholar put it like this. He said, this is not an admonition to some kind of superficial cheerfulness that closes its eyes to the surrounding circumstances. Okay, that, that's, that's not what's going on here. This isn't a kind of superficial happiness that Paul is calling us to here. This is a kind of joy that can even exist amid the most difficult of circumstances. Which, which means that this is not happiness like we normally think about happiness. For our natural mindset, things like hardship and happiness, they're mutually exclusive realities, aren't they? Right? Being joyful and things being difficult are poles of opposite extreme. That, that's, that's how we think about things. At least that's how I think about things. But not so with this kind of joy. That this kind of rejoicing, uh, this exists in, in such a way that, that it isn't even destroyed by things like beatings and imprisonment. It, it, it's not a joy that, that only exists in the absence of sorrow. Instead, and Karl Barth, he put it so well, this is a, a nevertheless kind of joy. I really like that. This hardship may be happening, but nevertheless, I will not be void of a certain kind of deep delight in my life. It's a nevertheless kind of joy. So much so that do you remember how Paul put it to the Corinthians? And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he, he describes, again, there are a series of, of really significant hardships in 2 Corinthians 6. So there Paul's talking about facing beatings, uh, facing imprisonments, deception, riots, all kinds of things going on in his life. And then he says, we're grieved, but what? You remember it? Always rejoicing. Sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Those two descriptive terms sound so mutually exclusive. Grief and joy. You, you can't get more opposite than that in so many ways, except Paul is saying, actually, they're not mutually exclusive at all. Instead, we are in the business of rejoicing continually all the time, even in the midst of, even in the, even in the honest lament and recognition of our own sorrows. So, how can that possibly make sense? How, how can you face a uniquely dark season in life? How can you face circumstances that properly and rightly make you weep, and yet at the same time you're still exercising joy? How can that possibly happen? Well, that brings us to the last bit of truth that Paul's packed into this statement. If, if you look at the verse again, it's not just that Paul says, Keep on rejoicing all the time. Again, I say rejoice. It's not just that, is it? He says, keep on rejoicing in the Lord all the time. Again, I say rejoice. 
This rejoicing isn't just something that's commanded, and this rejoicing isn't just something that's continual, but this rejoicing is, and most critically, this rejoicing is something that is located. Do you see that? It is located in the Lord. Which, which might at first sound like just a nice thing to say on the, apart, on the part of the apostle to make this all a little bit more spiritual. But, but to speak of rejoicing in the Lord is to bring up one of the most, if, if not maybe the, the biggest, the most gospel truth uh, that, that's revealed to us about who we are as Christians. We actually have parallel terminology found in verse 7 of this section where we read that our hearts and minds will be guarded in Christ Jesus. We're rejoicing in the Lord. Our hearts and minds will be guarded in Christ Jesus. In this section, Paul's locating his commands, uh, the commands that he's giving, in Christ. So, so the truth that Paul is referring to here is, what, is what's commonly referred to in theological categories as our union with Christ. The, the, the location, the gravitational center that our rejoicing life is orbiting around is a life lived in connection with the Lord Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, now, this matter, again, of being in union with Christ in the New Testament, there's something like 200 references to it. It's one of the most central of all gospel truths. But, but just in Philippians, there's a whole bunch of references that Paul's already, Paul's already used, and it helps us just to think about this. In fact, just the way Paul starts the letter, when he writes the letter, do you remember how it begins? He addresses it to the saints in Christ. There's union with Christ, to the saints in Christ. That word saints is a word that means holy ones. It's a word that references the fact that, that because of our connection to Jesus, we are holy and pure and righteous in God's sights. We're saints. You're a saint because you're in union with Christ. His, his work is applied to you. You're connected to Him. Paul addresses this letter to saints in Christ. There's union. And then even when Paul speaks about his current imprisonment, he uses union terms. He talks about being in prison in chapter 1, verse 13, because he's in Christ. His imprisonment is because he's in Christ. And then in, in the end of chapter 1, believers are to be boasting in Christ. So, so these Christians are to be speaking about the glories that are theirs, not because they're so wonderful and everything and they've, and they've earned these privileges from God, but because they're united with Jesus and His work that He's done. Right? Chapter 2, Paul talks about encouragement and consolation of love and fellowship with the Spirit and affection and mercy all being present in these believers' lives because they are in Christ. Faith that saves is faith in Christ in chapter 2, verse 9. So is assurance of salvation and peace with God in chapter 2 and chapter 4. And then here Paul locates this rejoicing in the Lord. This joy that exists even in the midst of hardship, the fact that we're called to be an always rejoicing people is not somehow a product of our, of our disassociation with feelings or experiences of sorrow. No, this always rejoicing is done because of our union, because of our connection with Jesus. So a minister of an earlier era, he makes this, this comment about our union with Christ. He says, Christ is the redeemed man's new environment. Just that alone is a great statement. Christ is the redeemed man's new environment. He has been lit, the, man, the, the, the Christian, has been lifted out of the cramping restrictions of his earthly lot into a totally different sphere, the sphere of Christ. He's been transplanted into a new soil and a new climate, and both soil and climate are Christ. His spirit is breaching a nobler element. He is moving on a loftier plane. It's a, it's a great description. 
But, but we're called to be rejoicing, not, not because we're expected to be conjuring up feelings of gladness that are disingenuous in some way. We're called to be rejoicing all the time, as we see here, in the Lord. We're called to rejoice because whether we're in, whether we're in, in prison or facing strife in a relationship or in, a, in the cancer ward at OHSU, we're called to rejoice because we are united eternally with the Son of God who came and lived and died and rose again and ascended and who's coming back to, all, uh, to make all things new. We're united to Him. Dane Ortland has written a, a book entitled Deeper. I know a few of you have read it. It's, it's a great little book. But in it, he speaks at length in one section about union with Christ. And I just want to read for you part of what he says. He, he begins by saying, Union with Christ is the umbrella doctrine within which every benefit of salvation is subsumed. I'm just going to read that part again because that's, that's super helpful. Union with Christ is the umbrella doctrine within, within which every benefit of salvation is subsumed. When we are united to Christ, we get all these benefits. And then he lists out a bunch of biblical metaphors describing the benefits that are ours in Jesus. Here they are. Justification, he says, we're no longer condemned. Sanctification, we're no longer defiled. Adoption, we're no longer orphaned. Reconciliation, we're no longer estranged. Washed, we're no longer dirty. Redemption, we're no longer enslaved. Purchased, we're no longer in debt. Liberation, we're no longer in prison. Illumination, we're no longer blind. Resurrection, we're undefeated by death. And then he goes on to say, union with Christ is the master picture. If you are in Christ, you get all these Rejoicing is commanded for the Christian believer. Rejoicing is continual for the Christian believer. And because all, and, and all of this can exist. All of this can be said by Paul. All of this can be expected by the apostle because it is all located in the reality that we have been united with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're always rejoicing no matter even the sorrow we're facing because we belong to Jesus and all the benefits he came to obtain for us can never be taken from us. Cancer can't take them. Life is for us. Death doesn't win because we have Jesus. A bad relationship can't take the benefits of Christ. You've been eternally adopted by God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. No relationship on earth can separate you from that love. Society, even that's intent on rejecting God, it can't take these benefits from us. Even as we have in Psalm 2, where those would, would thumb their nose at God, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He's not ultimately affected uh, by, the, by the contrary wills of humanity. Uh, death can't take these things from us. In fact, Paul makes it really clear, doesn't he, in Romans 8, that nothing in all creation can actually separate us from this union we have with God through Christ. Which means that nothing can break the root cause of our joy. Because we are connected to the sovereign of the universe who's entered into the experience of our humanity, took our sins upon himself, defeated death at the cross, and rose again so that we can be united with him and have life forever. And in that we have Merry Christmas. Right? Which, which is quite a potent truth to begin applying to our lives. I found it a convicting one to be meditating on this week uh, myself because... Because I'll tell you, and, and you probably know, but I'm fairly comfortable with, with general grumpiness. It's an easy thing to get comfortable with. But, but, but you see, even, even when I might have cause to be, to, to be a little bit sour, nothing is bigger than the reality of Christ for me. And, and I get into those dour frames of mind. Why? Well, because I've not obeyed this apostolic command, because I have not set myself to re, uh, on rejoicing, because I have been quick to forget the Lord's benefits for me. 
which is what the psalmist recognizes can go on in our hearts, isn't it, in Psalm 103? What does he say? Bless the Lord, O my soul. And he has to talk to himself for a little bit, doesn't he? Forget not all his benefits. Because that's what we tend to do. That's what I tend to do. We start to forget his benefits, and in the forgetting of his benefits, all of a sudden, these other things creep in to take that benefit space that makes all these other things seem like the most important thing. And if those things are removed, well, then here I am in my sorrow and my sadness, and it's the polar opposite of anything that's, that could remotely be associated with rejoicing. But you see, as long as we keep the benefits of Christ at the center of our hearts, as long as we keep the benefits of Christ, they're plain before our eyes. Then instead of finding ourselves in a place of sorrow with no rejoicing, we find ourselves in a place of sorrow yet always rejoicing because hope can never be taken away from us. That's the root cause of gloom is hopelessness, isn't it? This is never going to be over. I'm never going to get through this. This is, this is going to be very bad for me. But we have to see in this that, that the root of rejoicing is not, is not laid ultimately in those things that are always changing and fading and leaving or disappointing, Right? It's no wonder dour moods can set in when those things become primary. But this is bigger. It's bigger for you. It's bigger for me. You're in Christ if you're a believer here today. Right? Last week, Sheila and Gemma were baptized into Christ. Right? right? We are in union with Christ, and nothing can minimize the reality of all He is for me, all He is for you, all He is for us. So this Christmas time, we can be renewed in general happiness. It doesn't mean we don't face sorrow this season. Things can be hard. Things can be painful. Things can be distracting. Things can be confusing. But we have Christ so much so that even death itself can't be a final word in your life because you're with Him. Right? So, so for all the news we read, for all the sorrows we face, we, we, we have this, this ultimate song to sing. And that's why while, while personal difficulty may be present in our lives and while social concerns can be so deeply saddening, all of these things going on around us, that is why we rightly end the service today singing joy to the world. Because there is a joy that transcends all of these things rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ who has come and who will return and set all things right and perfect for all of eternity. We belong to the one who brings us into a sphere of hope connected to his very self. And that is beyond anything that can ever be destroyed. So rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. This priority of joy. It's commanded. It's continual. And it is located in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we can be refreshed by this. We can be compelled by this. The things that would otherwise leave me gloomy and low can come and arrest that uh, kind of gloominess with a hopeful sort of sorrow. The kind that can coexist even with, uh, the joy that can coexist even with sadness because of all that's there for me ultimately in the Lord Jesus. So we're thankful to God for His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do pray we would be renewed in these things this morning and that uh, we would be a joyful people, uh, that our dispositions would uh, be set with the, with the tone of delight because of who you are for us and what you've sent your Son to do for us. We pray that the ministry of the Holy Spirit would work uh, joy in us. We know that this is a, a fruit, a part of the fruit of the Spirit, to be a joyful people, and we desire to live in a way that responds to all that's ours and all that's secured for us in Jesus Christ, especially this Christmas as we consider what it means that He's come. May it mean for us that even if we're sorrowful, we are always rejoicing because of who He is. So may we be renewed and uplifted by this truth this morning, we ask in Jesus' name.
Amen.